Alright, we're in Hebrews chapter 5 tonight. Now we're actually going to be covering a lot of verses. Usually we only cover about 3 or 4, but tonight we're going to go all the way through chapter 6, verse 12. Yeah, I know. Hey, buckle up. But this section is so tied together, there's just no way I could break it down and feel like I was doing it justice. So I'm going to read the whole section, and then we're going to take the time to break it down bit by bit as we, as we wrestle through it here. Hebrews chapter 5, we're starting in verse 11, all the way through chapter 6, verse 12. Um, he's just talked about how Jesus was uh, designated by God to be the high priest in the order of Melchizedek. And then he says, we have much more to say about this, but it is hard to explain because you're slow to learn. In fact, though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you the elementary truths of God's Word all over again. You need milk, not solid food. Anyone who lives on milk, being still an infant, is not acquainted with the teaching about righteousness. But solid food is for the mature, who by constant use have trained themselves to distinguish good from evil. Therefore... Let us leave the elementary teachings about Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again the foundation of repentance from acts that leads to death, and of faith in God, instruction about baptisms, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. And God permitting, we will do so. It is impossible for those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, who have shared in the Holy Spirit, who have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the coming age, if they fall away, to be brought back to repentance. Because to their loss they are crucifying the Son of God all over again and subjecting Him to public disgrace. Land that drinks in the rain often falling on it and that produces a crop useful for those for whom it is farmed receives the blessing of God. But land that produces thorns and thistles is worthless and is in danger of being cursed. In the end it will be burned. Even though we speak like this, dear friends, we are confident of better things in your case, things that accompany salvation. God is not unjust. He will not forget your work and the love you have shown Him as you have helped His people and continue to help them. We want each of you to show this same diligence to the very end in order to make your hope sure. We don't want you to become lazy, but to imitate those who through faith and patience inherit what has been promised. Now, as you'll see in a bit, this is all tied together. So let's go back to chapter 5, verses 11 through 14. Here in this section, he just said, we have much more to say about this. And what he's talking about is this reference that he's made from Psalm 110 about Jesus being in the order of Melchizedek. He said, i got a lot more to tell you about Melchizedek and how this ties in with Jesus. But what happens next is, he says, but I can't do it just now because you're slow to learn. And so what we're going to deal with is, is deal with the fact that this is a very common malady in Christian churches. All right, This slowness to learn. There's a tendency for us as Christians to sometimes become lazy. There's a tendency for us as Christians to appreciate the grace of God and know that we're not under law now and God's not measuring our performance and determining whether or not we get into heaven by whether or not we're good enough. But because of our faith in what Jesus Christ has accomplished, we have been put into a position of sonship. We're children of God. We're sealed by the Spirit. We're guaranteed eternity if He's given us of His Spirit. And and, and that's a wonderful place to be, but there's also a tendency when that to sit back and say, whew, I'm, I'm good for heaven. And I know a lot of people over the years that used to say to me when I was a young kid and I'd be in church and we'd talk about heavenly rewards or we'd talk about being faithful in the walk and they'd say, well, I'd just be happy enough to be there. 
I'm just happy enough to go to heaven. That's enough for me. And the Hebrew writer is actually dealing with that attitude in this whole section. And he says in the midst of it, as you're going to see all this, that's not the great attitude to have. Because God is, has saved you, but He's also saving you. He has sealed you, yes, but at the same time, He is now trying to bring you into a deeper, closer walk with Him. Remember, He's trying to conform you into the image of Jesus Christ. Folks, if all God had in mind for us was to be saved and then go to heaven, we'd die the moment we trusted Christ. But He's got us here for a reason. Not only to use us for His purposes or His glory, but He's got us on this earth because He's trying to do something in us and through us in the years that we have between salvation and when we get to heaven. He's trying to accomplish something in us. And the Bible is very clear that that, what is accomplished from that point on will have an effect on our eternal reward. It won't have an effect on whether or not you get to heaven. That's already been taken care of. It's a gift. But it will have an effect on... What life is going to be like for you in eternity. And that's hard for some of us to grasp. And it's something the church doesn't deal with very much. And we're just mainly going to skim it tonight. And we're going to, especially as we get to the end of it, we're going to skim it. But the Hebrew writer just simply said, you guys are slow to learn. You should have been teachers by now. But I'm not sure you're going to be able to grasp the deep teachings on Melchizedek. And he goes in a second, you'll see in a little bit later, to say, well, we're going to move on anyway and hope you get it. But what I want to do is I want to show you that actually this is a very common malady. Uh, and so you don't think, well, that wouldn't happen to me. Paul had to deal with that too. Go to 1 Corinthians. Put a bookmark here in Hebrews chapter 5. Go to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. In the Corinthian church that Paul was dealing with, in chapter 3 verses 1 through 4, Paul had the same problem. Paul says to the Corinthian church, Brothers, I could not address you as spiritual, but as worldly, mere infants in Christ. I gave you milk, not solid food, for you were not yet ready for it. Indeed, you're still not ready. You're still worldly. For since there's jealousy and quarreling among you, are you not worldly? Are you not acting like mere men? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not mere men? Mere men. In this situation, Paul was dealing with the fact that the, what was erupting in the church was divisions and schisms, and they were focusing more on themselves than actually maturity in Christ, and they weren't manifesting the love of God, and there was a lot of problems in that church. And Paul said, I had to give you guys milk. You should have been able to have more than that, but you were infants still. You weren't ready for meat. And I want you to understand that just because you got saved doesn't mean that that's it. I want to show you a couple of places in the Bible that show us that actually... God has a lot that He wants to share with us. A lot He wants to teach us. There's a lot more to this Christian walk than just saying, well, I know I'm going to heaven when I die. That's why I'm excited to see you all come every week as you come together. And those of you that are listening now on the website, I know of people that are actually around the country right now listening, and I, I know about them as they've contacted me and let me know. Just praise God for those of you that tune in to listen to this study and are wrestling with the Scriptures. You hopefully are growing in your walk with the Lord Jesus Christ because of it. But look at what Jesus said in John chapter 16. Go to John 16, you'll see Jesus himself even told us that there's more. More than just saying, I know I'm going to heaven when I die. In John chapter 16, verses 12 through 15, Jesus said it so clearly. He said, I have much more to say to you, more than you can now bear. But when he, the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. He will not speak on his own. He will speak only what he hears and he will tell you what is yet to come. He will bring glory to me by taking from what is mine and making it known to you. 
All that belongs to the Father is mine. That is why I said the Spirit will take from what is mine and make it known to you. Here Jesus Himself said, there's a lot more. He'd already been talking to them about salvation. He'd already been talking to them about faith in Him. He said there's way more. But when the Holy Spirit comes, the Holy Spirit's going to guide you and teach you. Go to Ephesians chapter 1. Verses 15 through 23. Ephesians 1, verses 15 through 23. Look what Paul says here to the church there in Ephesus, and actually to all Christians, because this letter was to be passed around to all the churches. It says, For this reason, ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints, chapter 1, verses 15 and following, we're in verse 16 now, I have not stopped giving thanks for you, Remembering you in my prayers, I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know Him better. I pray that that also the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which He has called you, the riches of His glorious inheritance in the saints, and His incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is like the working of His mighty strength, which He exerted in Christ when He raised Him from the dead and seated Him in His right hand in the heavenly realms. Far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every title that can be given, not only in the present age, but also in the age to come. And God placed all things under His feet and appointed Him to be head over everything for the church, which is His body, the fullness of Him who fills everything in every way. You see here, Paul says to the Christians there, he said, I'm praying that the eyes of your heart would be opened. That you would understand the power that you have. That you would receive the spirit of wisdom and revelation. In other words, yes, you have been given the knowledge of salvation. And praise God that you have trusted Christ as your Savior. But there's more. And I'm praying that you would understand that. Now, as we've talked about in the past, and I want to remind you of, don't fall into the pattern of thinking, well, I'm not growing fast enough in my walk. No, The Father knows the rate at which you can grow. Just like those of you who had more than one child, you know that they learn at different rates. They have different abilities in learning and and all that. And you have to work with them in their different abilities to progress in that way. The Lord knows who you are. He knows your gifts. He knows your abilities. He knows your intellect, if you will, and your ability to, to grasp spiritual truths by His Spirit. He will work with you and get you there. I'm not saying compare yourself to somebody else to see whether or not you're mature yet. I'm saying... Have an attitude that says, I want to know more. That's all I'm saying. Have an attitude that says, I want to know more. Because I'm going to show you that actually being a baby Christian is okay. If you're a baby Christian. Go to, go to 1 Peter chapter 2. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, listen to what Peter says. To the Christians there. It says, Therefore, rid yourselves of all malice, chapter 2 of 1 Peter, rid yourselves of all malice and all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander of every kind. Like newborn babies, crave pure spiritual milk, so that by it you may grow up in your salvation, now that you have tasted that the Lord is good. Here he doesn't act like milk is a bad thing. Here he says milk's a good thing. Who's he writing to? Baby Christians. So it, it just the, de- the determination is how long you've known the Lord. Are you a new believer? Hey, start with the basics. Start with the elementary teachings. We're going to talk about some of those tonight. 
If you're a Christian that's known the Lord for a long time, you should be moving on by now. But you know what? Many Christians stay about the same rate. Well, they get to a certain place and they kind of plateau. That's a sad, sad thing. Sad thing is a lot of those Christians are in leadership in our churches now too. And we wonder why the church is sick. Because how few really are hungering and thirsting for more of Christ and more of His Word. Oh, we're hungering and thirsting for more position and more power and prestige in the church. But we're not hungering for more of Jesus. And so my challenge to you tonight as we look at this passage, and as you'll see is what the whole passage is really dealing with, is a challenge to hunger for more and realize that God has more for us. Alright? So let's go take a look now at what he says in chapter 6, verses 1 through 3. It says, Therefore, let us leave the elementary teachings about Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again the foundation of repentance from acts that lead to death, and of faith in God, instructions about baptisms, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment, and God permitting, we will do so. Now keep in mind the context of what Paul, uh, so not Paul, the Hebrew writer has just said here, we don't know who the Hebrew writer is, but what the Hebrew writer has said, let's keep in context, he's just been talking about how Jesus is a high priest in the order of Melchizedek, and he says, i got a lot more to tell you about this Melchizedek guy, but you're slow to learn and you're not ready for it. You should be teachers by now and you're not. And then he says, but you know what? I've decided I'm going to make you leave the elementary truths. And I'm going to start to teach you on Melchizedek in just a bit. And I hope you'll stay with me. It's pretty much what he's saying. Let's leave it, let's leave it anyway. Even though I should have, I'm having to teach the elementary truths over, he says, I don't want to do that. I'm, ready. I'm just going to take a step of faith and let's step out and move forward into the deeper teachings. And God permitting, we'll do so. Hopefully you follow, is what he says. But there's something here that I want you to see when he lists the elementary teachings. Has anybody ever looked at these things that are listed as elementary teachings and thought to yourself, man, I don't even know what a couple of these things are. Don't feel bad. So have I over the years. I've looked at it and gone... Okay, I'm a pastor of a church, and I'm not even sure what some of these elementary teachings really mean. Well, the reason is, is you've got to keep in mind his audience. Who is the Hebrew writer writing to? Jewish Christians. These are Christians who have a background and a history in Judaism. And actually, part of the reason why some of these things look confusing to us as Christians in the Gentile world is because he's actually referring to elementary teachings of the gospel that are tied into long-time foundational things in the Jewish religion. As we list these things, you'll see it all of a sudden become more clear. He lists, he said, um, the, the, the elementary teachings or the foundation as repentance from acts that lead to death. We'll get to that in a second. Faith in God. What does he say next? Instruction about what? Singular or plural? Yeah. We'll get to why he says plural in just a second. The laying on of hands. The resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. So what I want you to see is is that these elementary teachings are elementary teachings, but they're tied back into the Jewish heritage. And so now I'm just going to look at just three of these just to give you an idea of what we're talking about. Because for the sake of time, we could spend all night going back to the Old Testament on what these elementary teachings were and how they tied to the Old Testament. I just want to just touch on three real quick. Let's deal with the first one here where it talks about repentance from dead works. That was the dead works of what? Of the law. 
You remember? The law can't save you. The Jews were so proud of their ancestry and that they were religious and they were striving to be faithful to the law. And remember, the Pharisees were the, 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 the best at it. And what did Jesus say to them? You're blind. Every convert you make that follows you is twice a child of hell as they were before. Because now they think they're okay and they're worse off because of it. Repentance from dead works is actually realizing I can't do it myself. I'm going to show you what Paul said about it. And go to Philippians chapter 3. You see how Paul described these dead works. In Philippians chapter 3 verses 1 through 9, look at what Paul says about it. He says, finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. It's no trouble for me to write the same things to you again. And it's a safeguard for you. Watch out for those dogs, those men who do evil, those mutilators of the flesh. For it is we who are the circumcision, we who worship by the Spirit of God, who glory in Christ Jesus, and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reasons for such confidence, I mean, if anyone thinks he has reason to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. I was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law, a Pharisee. As for zeal, persecuting the church. As for legalistic righteousness, faultless. But whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What's more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them rubbish, that I may gain Christ and be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God and is by faith. Repentance from dead works. In other words... The Jews thought they were righteous because of their goodness. And they had to realize that that's not how it works. Now, in the world today, yeah, there are still people that think they're good. But they don't think they're as good as the Jews thought they were good. They just think God's standard is lower. And now in the world today, if you ask most people, if they were to die, would they go to heaven? They'd say, yeah, I think I'm a pretty good person. But that's because they think God's standard is low. The Jews thought God's standard was high, but they still thought they could do it. And that's why he says, look, that's just elementary teachings about repentance from dead works. The next thing he points out is what? Faith in God. Now you see clearly, Paul has made this very clear in this section, that faith in God is the key. It's not in anything you do. It's totally trusting that God is who He says He is, that Jesus is who He says He is, that Jesus can do what He said He would do, and that God will give you what He said He would give you if you'll trust Him. And, and that's, that's pretty basic. You even see that all the way through the Old Testament, by the way, all the way through the Old Testament, faith in God had been taught. Genesis chapter 15, verse 6, how Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. We see in another book, the uh, book of Hosea, the righteous shall live by sorry Habakkuk the righteous shall live by faith all along through the Old Testament the teaching or the elementary teachings of faith in God had always been there but then let's talk about this baptisms thing the teaching about baptisms actually the term is ablutions 
And what it means is ceremonial washings. And all through the Old Testament, there were many ceremonial washings. Remember, if someone was unclean, they had to be ceremonially washed before they could be going to, to be a part of a worship service or whatever. Or there are those that they even practice a ceremonial washing of their hands in a certain way, and the cup, certain cups in a certain way, and all this. And there was a picture of baptism in the Old Testament. And there were many ceremonial washings. And that's why the Hebrew writer says, and teaching about baptisms or washings. Of course, we know now there's one baptism. It is the, when we trust Christ, we publicly profess our faith in Him through our baptism. It doesn't wash away our sins. It's symbolic and it's a picture of what was in the past. And of course, you know at the time you trust Christ, you are at that time what? Baptized into Christ Jesus. You are put into Christ. He's put into you. You're pretty much swimming in God at that moment. Because Jesus said in that day you'll realize that I'm in my Father and I'm in you and you're in me. And as you take a look at all that, you are in Christ. It's a wonderful thing. And then for the sake of time, we won't move on to the resurrection, sorry, laying on of hands or the resurrection of dead and eternal judgment. But you do remember that there was a lot of laying on of hands in the Old Testament ceremonies. Were there not? Remember, there was a scapegoat and they laid hands on the scapegoat. And there was a lot of that in the Old Testament. And so part of the reason why Christians have read that section in Hebrews and thought to themselves, man, there's a couple of things in these elementary teachings I don't understand. It's because these are elementary teachings that had their root in Judaistic teaching and Judaism. And they had been taught all of those things and how those had been a picture of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And he says, but there's more. We need to move on beyond this. Hopefully you understand about repentance from dead works. Hopefully you understand about faith in God. Hopefully you understand about baptism. Hopefully you understand about uh, the laying on of hands. And hopefully you'll understand about the resurrection of the dead and the eternal judgment. But there's still more. And now we have to be straight up honest. A lot of Christians today still don't even understand about those, do they? They really don't. There's lots of confusion. Now I'm just going to touch on a couple of reasons why. There's many. But one is because over the years we've kind of expected the preacher to do the study of the Word of God. That's just the way it's been. That's his job, to go study. And then he'll preach and we'll sit and listen. And I don't know about you, but have you not known many of people who Sunday is their time to get their nap? I mean, let's be honest. Those of us who have grown up in church... Isn't that just kind of known? I had a grandfather who was known for it. I mean, my grandmother just stopped elbowing him after a while, and everybody in church just understood Milton's going to snore. But at the same time, there are very few that really hunger to study the Word for themselves. And that's why we're easily so easily led astray. That's why we're so susceptible to so much false teaching. That's why there's so many false teachers that are out there right now with uh, tickling, itching ears, with things that sound so good. Because if I were to ask you, do you believe in the virgin birth? Well, you would say yes, right? I'm not going to put you on the spot, but if I were to ask you to show me where in the Bible does it say that Jesus would be born of a virgin, many of you would have a hard time. Then how do you believe that Jesus would be born of a virgin? How do you believe in the virgin birth? Because somebody said it. If I were to ask you, is God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit manifest in the Trinity? You would say, yes, I believe in that. And I'd say, okay, show me where in the world the Bible says that. Many Christians today would have to say, uh, it's in there. Then why do you believe it? You believe it because someone said it. 
And guess what? If somebody gets up with a Bible in their hand and says, the Bible says this, and you don't know the Bible, you'll buy it. So don't sit here tonight and just look at the Hebrew Christians and say, boy, they were really slow to learn. We're just as guilty, folks. We're just as human as they were. We're just as human as the church in Corinth. That tendency to be lazy is in all of us. And then, after saying this, the Hebrew writer now moves into a section in which he gives a stern warning. And when I read it to you again, you're going to too go, uh-oh, what's he saying here? In chapter 6, verses 4-8, through eight, he says this, It's impossible for those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, who have shared in the Holy Spirit, who have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the coming age, if they fall away, to be brought back to repentance. Because to their loss... They are crucifying the Son of God all over again and subjecting Him to public disgrace. Land that drinks in the rain often falling on it and that produces a crop useful to those for whom it is farmed receives the blessing of God. But land that produces thorns and thistles is worthless and is in danger of being cursed. In the end, it will be burned. Now I've got to be honest with you. This section of Scripture has been one of the most debated sections of Scripture in the whole Bible. And to be also honest with you, if you were to do an in-depth study of this passage and read what commentators and theologians have said about this section, you will find 20 different interpretations of what this means. So which one is it? Well, I believe I'm going to tell you the right one. But you're going to have to wrestle with it yourself. And I'm going to use Scripture to interpret Scripture. Again, that's, that's what I base everything I do on. That's why whenever I show up at a church and, uh, as a traveling speaker, and they'll say, well, do you have your PowerPoint? I'll say, do you have your Bibles? <laughs> because I'm just going to use this. I'm not, I'm, I'm, there's nothing wrong with a video here or there, but that, that's not what God's called me to do. He's called me to study the Word of God and to teach the Word of God using the Word of God to interpret the Word of God. And so we're not going to spend time tonight dealing with the fact that you cannot lose your salvation. Hopefully you understand that. We've, we've hammered that already in our study of Hebrews. That if you have, and that's the if, if you have been given the Spirit of God, if you have been sealed by God, you cannot lose that salvation. It is something that God gives you. He will not remove His gift. God seals you. You are His. So, if anybody tries to take this passage and try to teach that you can lose your salvation, that's not what this is saying as you compare it to the whole of Scripture. So when you interpret Scripture, you have to first, when you don't know what it really might be saying, at least settle what it's not saying. We know it's not saying that you can lose your salvation because I could show you 50 places that would show that that's not true. But he sure is making a bold statement here, is he not? It's a scary statement, is it not? Well, let me read to you how I have reworded this statement to help you understand what, what I think he's saying here. He said, if you have seen, believed, and known the gospel to be true, and even in some way had the power of the Holy Spirit made manifest in your life, but then reject it as untrue, it will be impossible for you to be brought back to repentance since you, in, you, in your rejecting, have in a sense crucified Jesus anew. I'm going to read it to you again. 
I believe, and I'm going to prove to you why I'm saying it this way, and use actually examples from Scripture to show you what I'm talking about. But listen to this again. I believe the Hebrew writer is saying this. He's saying, if you have seen, believed, and known the gospel to be true, and even in some way had the power of the Holy Spirit made manifest in your life, but then rejected as untrue, it will be impossible for you to be brought back to repentance since you, in your rejecting, have in a sense crucified Jesus anew. This is the key part, folks. Look at what the Hebrew writer is saying here. He says in verse 6, If they fall away to be brought back to repentance, because to their loss they are crucifying the Son of God all over again and subjecting Him to public disgrace. Now, when Jesus was crucified the first time, what were the people saying when they crucified Him? They were saying, We know who you say you are. We say you aren't. That's what they said. They even mocked Him by saying... King of the Jews and putting it over his over his cross. Of course, the Jews said, no, say that he says he's the king of the Jews. And Pilate says, I've written what I've written. When they crucified Jesus, they said, we know who you say you are. We say you're not who you say you are. Now, what I want you to hear very closely, though, is this. What the Hebrew writer here is not talking about. This is not a picture of wavering. This is a deliberate rejecting or renouncing of Jesus as Lord after having come to a knowledge of the truth. Now, I did not say that this is someone who had received the Holy Spirit as a seal guaranteeing their deposit. But as you're about to see, I believe, as the Scripture says here, there are those who experienced a measure of the Spirit's working in their life to the point that they know that what they have put their faith in is real, and then at a point they reject it and turn away from it. The Hebrew writer says, if you have come to that point and you turn away, you will not and cannot be. Actually, the Greek word translates better. Instead of impossible, it's incapable. It's incapable for you to be brought back to repentance. So what we're talking, we'll get right to you, what we're talking about here is not someone who has wavered, and I'll explain that in a sec. We're talking about someone who has deliberately rejected and said, I don't believe it anymore. Judas Judas is the perfect picture, and we're going to take a look at Judas. He's the one that we're going to take a look at in depth. But I want you to, I don't want you to be freaked out for a sec here. Thomas doubted, did he not? Thomas is in heaven. Thomas doubted. This isn't what we're talking about. We're not talking about doubting. If you've been a Christian for any period of time, Satan's whispered in your ear, is this really true? You ever had that? I've had that. We're not talking that. John the Baptist questioned. Did he not? I mean, of all people, John the Baptist went from saying, that's the Lamb of God, to saying, are you the one or should we look for another? We're not talking a wavering. Many of us have the waverings. Peter chickened out. Right? When they said, hey, weren't you with him? Don't you know him? And he says, I don't know him. He wasn't rejecting him in the sense of saying, I don't believe he's the Messiah anymore. He just was afraid to tell anybody he believed he was the Messiah. And many of us have been a little bit chicken to share we believe that Jesus is who he is. Have have we not? This, the Hebrew writer is not talking about a wavering. He's talking about an absolute rejecting. But look at the conditions. Look again at verse 4. It's impossible for those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, who have shared in the Holy Spirit, 
who have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the coming age, if they fall away, to be brought back to repentance. In other words, these types of people that get that close, who believe and even have experienced, and we're going to talk about that, some measure of the Spirit's power in their life, if they, are the, if they ever say, I reject it now, there's no turning back. That's why this passage looks so scary, because the Hebrew writer is saying, it's impossible for you to come back if you do that. And as Allison has pointed out, Judas is a perfect picture of this. And let me walk you through a little bit about Judas to show you what I mean. Yeah, well, don't try to figure out who it is in the room. If you want to know, see me afterwards. But uh, actually, they're right. That's not for us to worry about. But we do see, we do see, we do. But we do see a picture here in Judas that is so clear. And and and, and when I show this to you, you're going to go, "Wow, that's the that's the that's Hebrews six right there." Let me show you what I'm talking about. Go to Matthew chapter fourteen. Look at verses 25 through 33. It says, During the fourth watch of the night, this is after Jesus has fed the 5,000. Remember, He sends His disciples off in the boat. During the fourth watch of the night, Jesus went out out to them, walking on the lake. When the disciples saw Him walking on the lake, they were terrified. It's a ghost, they said, and they cried out in fear. But Jesus immediately said to them, Take courage, it's I. Don't be afraid. Lord, if it's you, Peter replied, tell me to come to you on the water. Come, he said. Then Peter got down out of the boat, walked on the water, and came toward Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid, and beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Immediately Jesus reached out his hand and caught him. You have little faith, he said. Why did you doubt? And when they climbed into the boat, the wind died down. Then those who were in the boat worshipped him, saying what? Truly you are the Son of God. Who's in the boat? Judas is in the boat, folks. And it said, the Scripture says that those who are in the boat worshipped Him and said, You are the Son of God. Go to Mark chapter 6. Look at verses 7 through 13. Calling the twelve to him, he, Jesus, sent them out two by two, and he gave them authority over evil spirits. These were his instructions. Take nothing for the journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in your belts, or sandals, but not an extra tunic. And whenever you enter a house, stay there until you leave that town. And if any place will not welcome you or listen to you, shake the dust off your feet when you leave as a testimony against them. They went out and preached that people should repent. They drove out many demons and anointed many sick people with oil and healed them. Who's in this group? Judas. Look at verse 30. The apostles gathered around Jesus and reported to Him all that they had done and taught. Was Judas able to cast out demons? Whose power is that done by? The Holy Spirit, without question, right? He not only believed, he worshipped, he understood... He even experienced the power of the Holy Spirit manifest in his life. But he rejected. At a point he said, I changed my mind. 
And you're about to see something that's kind of tough, but I'm just going to tell you right now. Judas, when he rejected the Lord Jesus Christ, came to an understanding that he had done wrong, but it was too late. It was too late. Look, let me show you. Go to Mark, uh, sorry, not Mark, uh, Matthew chapter 27. I'm sorry, that he was what? I can prove to you that he wasn't forgiven, and you'll see. In, in Mark, Matthew chapter 27, verses 1 through 5. And I'm going to show you three, three passages about Judas in this section, and you'll see that Judas... I, I, I too wondered, you know, because as you're about to see, it looks like a godly sorrow. And I used to wonder, maybe, maybe God forgave him too at that last minute, because God is able to forgive at the last minute. But I'll show you a couple of verses that show he, he's not in heaven. It actually, Scripture even says so. In Matthew 27, verses 1-5, through 5, it says, Early in the morning, all the chief priests and the elders of the people came to the decision to put Jesus to death. They bound him, led him away, and handed him over to Pilate, the governor. Who, when Judas, who had betrayed him, saw what Je- that Jesus was condemned, he was seized with remorse and returned the thirty silver coins to the chief priests and the elders. I have sinned, he said, for I have betrayed innocent blood. What's that to us? They replied, that's your responsibility. So Judas threw the money into the temple and left. Then he went away and hanged himself. Alright, go to John chapter 6. There are those who have been taught that suicide means you don't go to heaven. That's not what the passage is saying. Don't let anybody lie to you and say that if someone commits suicide, they don't go to heaven. That's not what the Bible teaches at all. But I want to show you that Judas didn't come to a saving relationship after this point. John chapter 6, verse 70. I told you to turn there and I didn't do it. Look at what Jesus says about Judas. This is in the section where He says, Unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no part in Me. And upon hearing this, many of Jesus' disciples stopped following Him. And Jesus turns to the twelve, remember? And He says, Are you guys going to go too? And Peter says, Where else would we go? You have the words of eternal life. But then Jesus says this in chapter 6, verse 70. He says, Have I not chosen you, the twelve? Yet one of you is a devil. He meant Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, who though one of the twelve, was later to betray Him. Did Jesus know that Judas wasn't one of them? From the beginning. Let me show you one more passage. Go to Acts chapter 1. In Acts chapter 1, verses 15 through 25, the disciples are in the upper room now. This is after Judas has committed suicide. This is after Jesus' crucifixion. This is after His resurrection. And, and they're now in the upper room, just kind of waiting until the promised Holy Spirit. And in chapter 1, verse 15, Peter st- in those days, Peter stood up among the believers, a group numbering about 120, And he said, Brothers, the Scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke long ago through the mouth of David concerning Judas, who served as guide for those who arrested Jesus. He was one of our number and shared in this ministry. With the reward he got for his wickedness, Judas bought a field. There he fell headlong, his body burst open, and all of his intestines spilled out. Everyone in Jerusalem heard about this, so they called that field in their language, Akeldama, that is, the field of blood. For, said Peter, it's written in the book of Psalms, May his place be deserted, let there be none to dwell in it, and may another take his place of leadership. 
Therefore, it is necessary to choose one of them of the men who have been with us the whole time the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from John's baptism to the time when Jesus was taken up from us. For one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. So they proposed two men, Joseph called Barsabbas, also known as Justice, and Matthias. Then they prayed, Lord, you know everyone's heart. Show us which of these two you have chosen to take over this apostolic ministry, which Judas left to go where he belongs. Did Judas go to heaven or hell? He went to hell, it's very clear. Judas was one who, well, let's read the Hebrew writer's description, had been enlightened, who had tasted of the heavenly gift, who had shared in the Holy Spirit, who had tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the coming age. But if those people at that point reject, it's impossible, it's incapable of them coming back. It's like taking the mark of the beast. Those must have been through our Revelation study. You remember how clear that is? In the book of Revelation, during the tribulation, whoever takes the mark of the beast, you just signed your death warrant. This is what the Hebrew writer is saying, folks. Now, please hear me. He's not talking about Christians who have been truly born again. That's impossible for this to apply to them because the whole of Scripture is so clear that that God has given us His Spirit as a deposit guaranteeing what is to come, that our salvation is kept in heaven for us, how God Himself, it says in Jude, verses 24 and 25, now to Him who is able to keep you from falling and to present yourself before Him with great joy and without without fault. It talks about Jesus. Folks, the Scripture is so clear. If you have received His Spirit, if you have had the deal sealed, if you will, in that way, God's got you. You can't turn away. It's impossible. But there are those who come to an understanding in some measure, not the sealing of the Spirit or the indwelling of the Spirit, but in some way understand. There are those who then turn away and say, I have believed that you are who you are. Now I'm saying no. Guess what? They're crucifying the Lord Jesus Christ all over again. Bringing Him to public shame. And the Hebrew writer says, for those people, they just signed their death warrant. Yes, this is a scary passage. It's not saying you can lose your salvation. But would we not agree that the Hebrew writer is putting a serious warning to these Christians who are considering going back to Judaism? Well, let's go to the rest of that that section there in verses 7 and 8 here in chapter 6. Sure, go ahead. Okay, go for it. It's all right. I apologize ahead of time for my response. Okay. <laughs> there, he, there he fell, fell headlong. His mm-hmm. body burst open and all of his intestines spilled out. Yes. Was that before or after he hung himself? After he hung himself. Most likely what happened was he hung himself and he hung there for a while. And most likely either the rope rotted or he rotted. And because nobody wanted to touch him, because you know you weren't allowed to touch a dead body, you'd be unclean and all that stuff. And so probably nobody wanted to touch him. And most likely he his body fell and split open when it hit the ground. The tree could have fallen when the earthquake came. There's lots of ways that it could have happened, but like I say, that it's, that's been something. I'm a boy. I, I looked into that. You know, he hung himself first, and then his body split. So, yeah. Yep. But look at verses 7 and 8 now. In the context of this, in Hebrews chapter 6, verses 7 and 8, he's just said there are those who really aren't born again 
And if they come to that understanding and believe at one point and aren't sealed by the Spirit and turn away, it's over for them. He then says a very interesting thing. He said, "...land that drinks in the rain, often falling on it, and that produces a crop useful to those for whom it is farmed, receives the blessing of God." But land that produces thorns and thistles is worthless and is in danger of being cursed. In the end, it will be burned. Does anybody remember the parable of the soils? Jesus said the seed falls on the hard path, they don't even respond. Seed falls on the rocky soil, springs up, looks like salvation. But then trouble comes and they go away because they had no root. It wasn't real salvation. Seed falls on the thorny soil, springs up, looks like real salvation, but the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of wealth choke them, make them unfruitful. It wasn't real salvation. But seed falls on the good soil, springs up, and it produces a crop. And what the Hebrew writer is saying here is, is you know what, the land comes, and the rain comes down and waters the land. And in some places, it produces a crop. In other places, it produces thorns. And what comes out over time determines whether or not the soil's any good. So how are we going to know who in this room truly is sealed by God and born again? And who, how are we going to know who's going to go away? Fruits and time. Time will tell, folks. Time will tell. And let's be honest, I can tell you, having known Christ since 1973, I'm not good at math, I don't know how many years it is, it's 30-something. Thank you. 37. 38. I don't know. In the 30s. Having having known... It was September, actually. So 37. So we... Uh, having known Christ for 30-something years. I, one way I can tell you that I know I'm His is there have been times that He has held on to me and kept me in the faith. I don't, I don't worry about losing my salvation anymore. I went through that period of that and that's a horrible way to live. I don't worry about that anymore. That's why Paul says in Ephesians chapter 6 to put on the full armor of God and take your stand against the devil's schemes. And a part of that armor is the helmet of salvation. You put that helmet of salvation on, you cinch that on good and tight, and you don't let him mess with you there. But... Paul says in 2 Corinthians 13.5, examine yourself to see whether or not you're in the faith. Is Jesus in you? Let me show you one more passage that kind of goes along with what we're talking about. Go to John chapter 2. Some of you are probably sitting there wondering, well, if there are people that believe, but He doesn't seal them with His Spirit, and then they turn away, why didn't He seal them when they believed? The, an- he know- the answer, He knows your heart, the answer is right here in John chapter 2. Look- oh, there are places about that. Yes, definitely. For those that are His, nothing can take you away from Him. John chapter 2, look at verses 23 and 24. It says, well, now... While he was in Jerusalem, this is Jesus, at the Passover feast, many people saw the miraculous signs he was doing and believed in his name. But Jesus would not entrust himself to them, for he knew all men. He didn't need man's testimony about man, for he knew what was in a man. Why didn't God seal these people? Because he knew their hearts for real. He knows the whole story. And he knew that they truly weren't believers. They look like it for a while and can fool you and me. But God knows. Now, let's take the time that we have left here and look at our encouragement at the end of this section. 
Thank God for the Hebrew writer not leaving it like that. You know, it's kind of like the way we tuck our kids into bed at night. <laughs> you know, we, we teach them these prayers. If I die before I wake, have a good night's sleep. You know, and don't let the bed bugs bite. You know, we, we, we do that kind of a thing. Thank God the Hebrew writer didn't leave us like that. After this very stern warning, he then says in the last section in verses 9 through 12, even though we speak like this, dear friends, we are confident of better things in your case. Things that accompany salvation. God is not unjust. He will not forget your work and the love you have shown Him as you have helped His people and continue to help them. We want each of you to show this same diligence to the very end in order to make your hope sure. We don't want you to become lazy, but to imitate those who through faith and patience inherit what has been promised. Why does he keep talking like this? Because he doesn't know his audience fully. He knows that there may be those who turn away. And there are definitely a group that are considering going back to Judaism. It's impossible for those who are truly born again. But there may be those in there who will be some of these Judas types. He doesn't know. But then he says, "Ah, I got better hope for you than that though. But in the middle of saying, I have better hope for you than that. He then says what? Why don't you get serious about your relationship with Christ just to make sure? Why don't you get serious about your relationship with Christ, just to make sure? And I thought, there is a tension. Has anybody noticed it yet? If you've been studying Scripture for years, there's this tension in Scripture. You can't run to one extreme or the other. There's a a balance that it keeps pulling you back to. And I think the best place, and we're going to wrap up with this last verse, the best place to prove this to you is in Philippians chapter 2. And you'll see this tension Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 and 13. Paul says, Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but also, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you to will and act according to His purpose. So who's doing the work, us or Him? The answer is yes. It's both. Does your work get you into heaven? No. But what did James say? Anyone that says he has faith and it's not evidenced by deeds... I don't think they have real faith. That's why for years, by the way, a lot of you may not know that, when the men were putting together the canon of Scripture, they had a lot of serious credentials and criteria that each of the books of the Bible had to meet in order to make it as as the Scriptures. And one of the reasons why James almost didn't make it was they thought that he was contradicting Paul. Paul said that it's, we're, not, we're saved by faith alone, not by anything we do. It's a gift of God. Yet James says, you tell me you got faith, show me by your evidence of your works. And they thought that they were contradicting each other until they looked at it more closely and they saw that they weren't. James was just saying the truth. Look, if you have faith, it will manifest itself in, in growth. You just can't say you got faith and have no growth. But don't think that it's your efforts that's going to get you into heaven. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling, but keep in mind that if anything's going to happen, it's God who works in you, not only to will, but also to act according to His good purpose. So who is it? Yes. Trust that God will finish what He started. Trust that God will do what He's do, what He's going to do. But don't make that let you sit on the couch and say, I'm just glad I'm going to heaven. 
You want to know you're His? Step out in faith. You want to know you're His? Take serious what what the book says and put it to work. Oh, don't fall into the trap of thinking you're okay now because you're doing the right things. Do you see the tension? That's why on a daily basis you have to get up in the morning and say, Lord, renew my mind. Renew my mind. I know the truth, but I need you afresh and anew to realign me that I live today with an understanding that there are things that you want me to do, but it's to be done by you in faith. And on a daily basis you need to fall into that pattern of renewing your mind. Folks, as we said at the beginning, there are a lot of Christians who have become lazy. I sure hope I see them in heaven. There are a lot of people, though, that work real hard who think they're going to heaven. But those of us who are truly His will be sent there and kept there and prepared for there by Him alone. Yet, we're to take serious this salvation that we've been given. So, go to work. Don't put your faith in your work. Put your faith in Christ, but don't forget your work. Does that make sense? The best it can, right? (laughs) Let me pray for us. Father, I thank You for this section of Scripture. I know that it's been a hard one for me for years. Because as I looked at some of the things the Hebrew writer said, I was like, wait a minute. This seems to go against other parts of Scripture. But the more You've had me wrestle with it, the more You've had me take a look at it, the more it becomes clear that there are those who are going to say to you on that day, Lord, Lord, wait a minute, didn't we prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons? And you're going to say, depart from me, I never knew you. But Lord, at the same time, you make so clear that if we've received your Spirit, we're yours for eternity. We're sealed. We've been made perfect forever. And there's this tension in your, in your, in your Scriptures here. And as I mature, I'm starting to thank you for it. Because it keeps me alive. My flesh wants to just rest to the point of being lazy. My flesh wants you just to do it all. But that's not the kind of life you want me to live. You want me to trust you? But you want me to work? That's why Paul says in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 10 and following, that he labors and he struggles with all the power that God has. Father, I pray for my brothers and sisters in this room and those that are listening online right now that they would be challenged and encouraged. Challenged to not be lazy and to move on to maturity, but also encouraged to know that you're going to be the one who does the work. Father, we saw David pick up the stone, but you're the one that supercharged it to make it kill Goliath. We saw Gideon step out in faith with just 300 men and torches and pots, but it's you who defeated the enemy. We see the nation of Israel walk around the cities, the walls of Jericho, but you were the one who knocked the walls down. We saw the nation of Israel stand there in faith as the nation of Egypt was bearing down on them and the army was bearing down on them, but it was you who parted the water. All the way through Scripture, Lord, we've seen this tension. Moses struck the rock, but it's you who made the water come forth. And so, Lord, we have seen it all along. You want us to put effort into this relationship. You want us to do. You don't want us to think that our doing does anything. But you want us to act in faith. And so, Lord, I pray that each of us, myself included, would continue to work out our salvations with fear and trembling. Take serious what it is we've been given. Yet, understand that it's you who gives us the desire and the ability. 
Lord Jesus, may no one in this room have Hebrews chapter 6 apply to them. We pray this in your name. Amen.